Addiction, not obsession. I'm not referring to my Puerto Rican roommate from college who was obsessed with weed and spent most of his days and nights smoking away playing NBA 2K as I escorted the latest knock at the door down the hall into his room. I'm not talking about obsession. I'm talking about pure addiction. Addicts, if you have to give it a name. I'm talking about those of us that have changed our biological makeup so much that we have to depend on a substance or two to get us by. Truth be told, not a lot of addicts are probably sitting here listening to this podcast. But even if you're not an addict, maybe you know someone who is. Maybe that's hard. Maybe that's really, really hard. You see, having love for someone who suffers from a biological change from who they once were, but yet still carrying the same physical remains of that person can be outright confusing and gut-wrenchingly surreal. This is a case too close to my home. But just know this, that the road back isn't impossible because it doesn't matter how slowly you go just as long as you don't stop. You have value. You deserve love. So if you know someone or yourself happens to be addicted to alcohol or drugs or some other type of vice, real help is here. Chris Everett of the Gap Toledo is the real deal. 26 years of significant time, both addiction and recovery, he has identified all of the areas in which the system fails to lend real help and resources to those in need. I don't put my stamp on a lot of people these days, and, well, that's a story for another day. But this guy works in the gray areas of the recovery business where the system only sees the green. You're not going to want to miss this one. Bobby Talks. Always more to the story. Welcome everyone to Bobby Talks, dot, dot, dot. Those dots are there to tell you that there's always more to the story. And today's story is filling the void or filling the gap. I'm sitting here with Chris Everett, the owner of The Gap. We'll get into what that is here in a second. Julio Grady and Isaac Verdugo. Did I say that correctly? You did. Awesome, awesome. Uh, first of all, just thank you guys for being here. I know it's just Toledo, but sometimes to some people, when it's their gas and gas is $4 and 50 cents a gallon, you know, it's a, it's a trek. So I appreciate you guys coming out here making the trip. Um, Our pleasure. Dude, uh, how you guys doing, first of all? Pretty good. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful fall morning, Chris. <laughs> actually, yeah. it's actually really nice out. You're right. Oh, it's awesome. Um, so before we dive into exactly what we're going to be doing on today's show, a couple things to note is that uh, um, some of the subject matter is going to be, well, it's downright personable. I mean, it, it's, it's uh, one of those things that um, it's going to be close to home for some people. And uh, I was just telling them off camera how it is going to be personable to me um, because of things that just happened in my life and continue to happen in my life. But um, what we hope to do is raise awareness with some of the things that you guys are doing um, and uh, hopefully maybe bring some uh, peace of mind to some people as well. So uh, what we're talking about is overcoming um, the obstacle that is the moment you make a decision when you are, whether you're addicted to drugs, you're coming out of jail, things of that nature, um, that moment you've made that decision to get help 
in the road to recovery, all right? What you would call or consider success, all right? And you, Chris, started this thing uh, called The Gap. And it's The Gap Toledo. Mm -hmm. Um, And the idea being that you are filling all the voids that the moment people are free and they make that decision to, you know, I want to change my life or turn it around, you are the one that has taken upon you and yourself and, you know, uh, Julie and Isaac help as well. But like you started this thing where you wanted to fill that void because unfortunately the system doesn't do enough to help. They just kind of throw you back out into the jungle and say, okay, you weren't prepared before. I hope you are now. Uh, is that right? Is that, am I, am I kind of nailing it on the head a little bit or yeah, no, fill it's, the void? it's a hundred percent correct. Um, First of all, th- thanks for having us. Here yeah, we're, we're really excited to be here and, and share what we're doing. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I guess I can preface, you know, the gap with I, I lived in addiction for many, many years um, and I, I didn't really have anything. I didn't have resources. My the people around me didn't have resources um, and there was no one there to walk us through that. Um, and then you run into the the problem when you do find the resources, they're still lacking, you know, and when you're in between the resources, there's, there's nothing there. So there are many gaps, right? There are gaps in the beginning, there are gaps in the middle, there are gaps uh, at the end. Sure. Yeah. What, um, when you talk about resources, like what exactly are the resources that um, an, an addict might need when he, when he, he or she becomes back out on her own to make that decision. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, as I, as I kind of, um, alluded to, you know, it's all through the the treatment process, whether it's, um, you know, pre-treatment, post-treatment or in the middle of it, uh, which we deal a a lot with is people like who've messed up, uh, their, their, their treatment, basically like drug addicts do what drug addicts do and they, they use, or they break a rule and, um, the rules are pretty black and white when, when it comes to being in, um, being in a treatment center, uh, they, they lose their, their housing. Um, if you're in a long-term treatment center, 99% of the time you are homeless, right? You're homeless. And there's, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people that are in this, uh, you know, in the exact situation in Toledo, you know, alone right now. Um, and there's a lot of people that fall through the cracks. You know, we had a guy last night who uh, I got a call from a, a treatment center and they were kicking him out because he had not only used, but he had OD'd and they had brought him back, but he was no longer allowed to stay there. And, you know, we know as addicts in recovery, um, you know, you, you get a case of the efforts and, and you're like, well, I've already screwed this up. I'm just going to finish the job. Just keep going. Just keep going. Um, so we provide them, you know, they have to make the choice, right? Right. And, and that's to, to come in and follow our rules. But um, if they if they make that choice that they want to continue this road, we we will keep them alive, you know, God willing, long enough to get them there again because right. it's not a one and done. So, all three of you have your own unique individual paths to addiction, um, and now all three of you have your own unique individual paths to, you know, recovery. Um, and is it fair to say that? And I know it's cliche. You've heard, I probably heard it a hundred times, but every day is a battle. You're never fully recovered. You are, you know, constantly working. It's a discipline every single day. Is that fair to say? I guess I would say 
a lot of life is probably a battle for everyone, sure. not just an addict. You know what I mean? Mm. So for us, living life on life's terms um, is probably the same for other people, but our coping mechanism for those things would be drugs and alcohol. Right. So trying to find other ways to cope and process emotions using a support system or, um, you know, uh, intellect over emotion, we were kind of talking about um you know, keeping our impulsivities in check. Um, so probably the same stuff everyone deals with, but just our coping mechanism can't be what it used to be. You sure. know? So we have to develop new ones. Is that true? Is what she's saying true there? I would definitely I agree with that. Yeah. Um, handling emotions now, like I can't just run to alcohol or drugs. Like I have to figure them out by myself and developing those like coping mechanisms is new, but it's my new foundation. How often is it, when you are struggling with those coping mechanisms, is that something that all three of you shared that maybe you didn't have the coping mechanisms that you needed at an early age? And that leads to, you know, whether you're a young adolescent or a teenager making poor decisions. And then, you know, maybe you're not making as hard of decisions that you are, you know, going to be making in the next four or five years when you become an adult. But you, you, because I came from the background of being an educator you know, everything we do, I try to teach socioeconomic, um, you know, type of, uh, um, what's the word I want to put on it? I guess language of how to come up with coping mechanisms um, for conflict resolution, for, you know, what it takes to identify a leader, what, how you can, you know, follow correctly, but lead when you need to, you know, just all those things. Um, is that true? Were you guys awfully young, struggling with those coping mechanisms? Or was there an event in life that might have triggered you? I mean, I'm sure there was one, two, five that triggered you to make these effort decisions. And by the way, you can swear on the show if you want. It's not a big deal. But oh, if, you, yeah. it's not your, if it's not your taste, that's not you don't have to. But I guess what I'm asking is, is that do you feel like early on you lacked the coping mechanisms that you needed in order to be a successful whatever that version is to you, an adult? 100%. Yeah. Uh, 100%. Um, I, I talk about it. I end up doing, you know, quite a few talks and, and, you know, getting up in front of people and kind of sharing my story. I was already an extremely impulsive kid. Okay. Um, I, I got in a lot of fights. Uh, I just, I had a taste. I, I, I like to be out of control, um, from a very young age. Now I had some abuse. I, I had uh, sexual abuse, um, that I didn't even identify until till later on in life. Um, and, and there were multiple instances of that. And, and it's weird to even be like out here talking about it because like a few years ago, I, I didn't. And, and like, I, I couldn't even identify it. Um, but looking back, uh, I had, you know, the perfect kind of storm for mayhem, yeah. you know, and, and that's, and that's what I was in people's lives because there was a storm in me, right. You know, there was a storm in me and, and, um, it, it affected anyone who I was ever, you know, close to. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. There was, there was always indicators. Right. And I think sometimes it just takes like something to really flip that switch and be like, I'm all in, Sure, you know, and, and, um, whether we agree to have that switch flipped or not, you know, it's not really up to us, is it? Yeah, man. I, I can't even, um, it's just so, it's so difficult because you never know what triggers who. Um, 
you know, even in my personal situation, so like I was telling you guys off camera, this situation is hitting close to home for me um, because of certain things. And it's no secret that my brother, I, I've said this on previous podcasts, has struggled um, with his addictions and his demons. Um, the issue is, is that he's isolated himself from his family um, for so long. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm sure there's reasons justified in his head um, for why, you know, he isolated himself from his family too. So I'm not trying to completely take blame or, you know, say we were perfect in any sense of the word, but like what family is, you know what I mean? I I do know that um, there is never a moment that I can see um, that should have pushed him away from us to never feel like we weren't, you know, always going to tackle problems together. Um, So maybe part of that is why he doesn't, you know, he's not ready to face that yet. Um, but with that being said, what were your guys' support systems like growing up? Um, I, I want to kind of get into all of your stories because I think, you know, everybody might cling to one person. Somebody might, you know, be more relatable with you, Julie, or Isaac as they're listening. And I think it's important that the audience kind of gets background on you guys. But just out of curiosity, Isaac, what was it like, you know, what was your support system like growing up? Um, it was a lot different. Um, I grew up in a really religious family. Okay. So I was a pastor's kid growing up. I didn't have many friends that would be my support system. Um, I was kind of like thought I was a snitch or I was just like a good guy, like where I only did the right things. Sure. So my main support system was my sisters. I had two sisters growing up. Um, we weren't as close as we could have been, but I always lacked a solid support system. And does that contribute, you think, to some of the decisions that you were forced to have to make? I would say it definitely has a factor, yeah. Okay. Okay. What about Julie? What about you? So as you guys were talking, I was kind of thinking about the nature versus nurture type yeah. thing, right? So I have um, a sister who was five years younger than me, and we both grew up in the same household with the same experiences, and she turned out to go to college and get a degree and she's married and lives in Australia and I became a drug addict. Right. So I think for me, it wasn't necessarily, it was the way I process things. Right. So it was, I was already um, diagnosed with um, depression in seventh grade and then I developed anxiety um, and like borderline agoraphobia. It was hard for me to go outside of the house. So the, the, events that happened that I went through and she went through the way I processed them were very different. The impact that they had on me were very different. So I think that that's where, um, where that kind of changed for her and I was things that were said maybe in the house when my dad was angry or something that someone like her or a, a stronger child could brush off. I took to heart and they played through my head for years, you know? Right. Um, so I think, with me, I had a support system in the home, um, but I felt like I didn't. I felt right. alone. Right. And that's <laughs> just how we perceive things mm-hmm. is so crucial, too. Um, I think a lot of times as teachers is that and I, I also coach, but I also tell my my students and some of the other staff members, I'm like, you know, just because you said it out loud doesn't mean that it the child heard it, you know, because are they, you know, student A might perceive it in process it like you said completely different than student b it's the follow-up mm-hmm. you know what i mean did you have a lot of that um oh, we, 
I, I mean, I guess like it, now that I'm an adult and now that I'm older, I understand that my parents aren't superhuman, right? Like, and I think as a child, um, I took a lot of things personally and I took a lot of things. Um, I think I wish I would have had more verbal follow-up, verbal encouragement, verbal support. Um, and it, my sister didn't need that. You know, she wanted to get A's for herself. I wanted the, you know, the praise and the attention. And so I just think maybe, yes, I could have used a little bit more verbal encouragement, but again, everybody gets their encouragement from, you know, a different place. She got an A that made her happy. I wanted to hear them say, good job. Chris, before we get to your support system, I kind of want to follow up on something you said, though. You you, you talked about nurture versus nature. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here you you and your sister are two very different cases, right? Um, she was intrinsically motivated. Everything was, I want this. I want this for myself, so I'm going to work for this, and, you know, I'll see the reward from it. Yes. Um, you were very transactional. I will get the A for you, but I better, you know, I want it because I want you to say you're proud of me. Mm-hmm. Um that is a slippery slope that a, a teenager or even a young kid can't understand the word, it, you know, the, the concept of it being transactional. Um, sometimes parents don't understand that it's transactional. They're, you know, it's not like the concept sitting there, oh, chapter 15 of how to be a parent. Oh, don't make transactions with your kids. You know what I mean? Um, do you believe in nurture over nature or nature over nurture or a little bit of both? I think it's a mixture of both. I really do. I I think probably because of my nature, I needed to be nurtured a little differently. Sure. You know, um, and and the formula just worked really well for my sister. If I had negative any kind of negative reinforcement, I just gave up. Okay, yeah. I I'm I'm not going to do it. Then I'm going to get F's because I didn't get the A. It was one or the other. There was no right C's in between you know so you're a failure or I'm a winner that happens so often it's such an overcorrection Mm -hmm. you know you're uh you're you're both extremes right you know what I mean um wow uh Chris support system man (coughs) sorry um is it is the is the stand messing up on you yeah a little bit sorry no you're all right Uh, let me adjust this here um support system man if I had it around me, I never utilized it. Um, and, and like kind of what Julie was saying, as far as like, there's no handbook to being a parent, right? Like, and, and I don't, I don't blame my mom or dad. Like they did, they did an amazing job for what they had to work with. Um, I, I didn't want a support system. I can remember from a very young age saying, like actually vocalizing, um, that, I had wished I was an orphan, which is, that's like a deep dive into something like very no, like yeah. in, into to, to my mindset. Um, but I remember thinking, and, and you know, I, I examined it as, you know, I, I got clean and, and I thought about it, but I didn't want any, I didn't want any attachments to people, you know, um, they, they were messy and they hurt and people die and they go away. And, uh, I was I was uh, an island unto myself for many many years. Give me kind of a uh, an age range that you're talking about when you I'm kind talk- of first yeah realized so like this. very young like um, maybe five six years old really that. yeah yeah um, I was constantly I can remember a constant state of 
worry about like my mother or my brother um, because I felt like people around, and, and this is, you know, this is just me. Like I, I felt people were weak. Oh, Even interesting. At, at, a, at, a, yeah. at a, you know, at a, that young of age. And I'm sure that that comes from abuse and, and, you know, not being um, protected and then like building, you know, this wall up around yourself. But I, I felt like even at that age, I felt like people were, were weak and that I was always going to be in charge of protecting them. Um, and, and, you know, like, I just remember thinking it would be much easier if I didn't have anyone to protect. Interesting. Wow, man. Um, so with what you just said, then let's kind of transition if we can a little bit into your, your own individual stories. And I'm sure that they're, you know, I, I don't want, I don't want you to leave anything out that you don't feel like if you feel it's important to think, uh, just for the purpose of the this, this show, I guess, um, you know, I'll give you guys maybe, you know, each two, three minutes to just kind of tell your story. Um, Chris, I think we should start with you. Uh, you, since you're the founder of the gap, um, we'll get to your reasons for how we created the gap. Yeah. Let's talk about your addiction. Um, the abuse, the things that led to it, um, you know, your entire journey with it, where you think it started and where you're at with it now. Um, and not necessarily don't answer that last part yet, but just lead, tell us your story of addiction if you can. Yeah. Um, so obviously I already touched on the abuse aspect and, um, I wasn't, a, I don't, I wasn't aware of it, um, till much later on. Right. But like, it was the reason, a, a lot of the reason that fed into my behaviors, but I can remember the dare program. Do you remember that? I uh, remember yeah. them coming into the schools and I, I, I tell the story often. I can remember when that cop came in and he had that poster board with all those drugs. I remember leaning over, this is like third grade. I remember saying, I'm going to do every single one of those drugs that are on that board. And my thought, if people are getting hooked on this stuff, man, that shit's got to be great. Wow. So that, that was the mindset I had from, from a youth. From now, a sorry. Yeah. A third grader says that to a, yeah. you know, a kid, you know, their buddy sitting next to him. It's like, Oh yeah, buddy. Yeah. You'll go ahead, Chris. You know what I mean? It's just a kid talking at the time, but you knew it wasn't just the kid talking. No. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, okay. I, I, man, I, I've always been, <laughs> I, I think I've always been overly self-aware or like pitifully not. Sure. Right. And, and that's probably just how it is. <laughs> um, I, you know, I was not a dumb kid, you know, I was not a dumb kid at all. And I knew what I wanted and I've always done exactly what I wanted to do. Um, you know, consequences be damned every time. And whether it was a positive thing or a negative thing, I was going to do it, you know? Um, so that, that just, man, and, and I'll try to keep it as short as I can. Uh, my grandfather passed away. He was an alcoholic. He passed away when I was around 11 years old. He didn't have anything um, except alcohol to leave the family, and he left alcohol. And I sat in my parents' basement, and my, my parents, my dad, you know, worked all the time, um, and, and my mom was, you know, on, on her own journey. Uh, and I remember, you know, drinking and getting a headache the first time, but knowing that if I kept going at it, I'd get good at it. And, and that's how I, that's how I did everything. Started with inhalants, got kicked out of school for the first time when I was in the sixth grade, didn't go back again for several years. Um, it, what, what precipitated that or, or um, was, was me getting caught with a pistol for the first time at 12 years old. Um, and it just, all the behavior increased and increased and increased. Um, I got, I got in, I, I mean, I just fought, I fought, I fought, I was always fighting. I was always getting into crap. 
Um, I got into high school and that just continued. And I found much more, you know, like, and you level up, right. As such as in life, you just keep leveling up. And, uh, when you become like the most impulsive and dangerous person that you're around, you'll go find people that, uh, that can, you can look up to in that. And that's what I found. Um, I found that, in a, you know, kind of a, a Toledo, you know, legend, uh, at the time he's actually doing life in prison right now. Um, but very well known, um, very well known, uh, killer. And, um, that's who I attached myself to and my identity to. And, um, I was earning my stripes, man. So I did that and, and just, it got deeper and deeper and deeper and, and you know, took me down a road that, it's very difficult for me to stand up in front of people and talk about because they cannot comprehend that the person in front of them has done all of these things that they're talking sure. about. Right. Yeah. It's so abstract to them. Um, and, and sometimes it, it kind of makes me a little resentful because I'm like, they're, they're just like, they're kind of wowed by a story, but yeah. it's not real. So, right. Yeah. No, that's a uh, couple things before we move you, Julie. Um, yeah, you're right. It, it kind of, in a way, it kind of pisses you off. A little bit. It yeah. does. It's like, uh, especially in your case, because you've told it, you know, over and over and over again, I'm sure. Um, but at the end of it, you're just like, you know, you'll never, you know. But that's the point, is that you have to kind of remember that you're talking to the Chris that's sitting in that audience. You're not talking to the majority of the audience. Right. You're talking to the one, the five group, you know, depending on how large of an audience you're talking to, you're talking to those kids that are turning around telling their buddy, I'm going to be just like that guy. Yeah. You know, you're hoping that somebody's listening to you. Um, I got to tell you, the posters and the dare work tremendously on me. I was <laughs> terrified of everything. Um, I'm like, oh, I can get that. Oh, that, you know, I can't do that. You know, but a lot of that also came, you know, my relationship with my grandfather. My grandfather and I is the closest relationship I could have ever dreamed of as a person in every single, whether that was healthy or not, every single decision I made was transactional for him. Mm. Um, and, but he never pressured me to do anything. So it was healthy in that sense. I still had free will to make decisions. Um, I'm curious about your story because when I deep dove into kind of like reading the about of what the gap is about, um, you talk about how you, you generally would, um, do it to help others like in the sense of like um you would make bad decisions to help other people um so yeah i mean i i really would like so a lot of a lot of because you said of, protect right protect yeah. so i was constantly doing that and i don't know and like, this is again, and maybe I'm, this is kind of turning into a, my, my own therapy appointment. I'm not sure of this is um, a safe spot, but no, yeah, yeah. You know what, man? Like I have to be so transparent for yeah. so many people all the time. It doesn't scare me to go, sure. to go there. Yeah. Um, but, um, I, so I often wonder, and I think I've had this conversation with Julie, if it was something that I recognized I could take my impulsivity and my lack of fear and use it positively. Yeah. Um, I, I very much feel deeply for people who are being preyed upon. And I'm sure that comes from, you know, my, my own stuff of being preyed upon. Um, but I think that it was a, a little transactional for in, in that case too, sure. right? Like everything is transactional right, to a certain right. I do a good deed. It makes me feel good. That is a yeah. transaction. 
So yeah. it, was, it was self-serving. And what I've learned as time has gone on, violence has been a drug for yeah. me. Um, and it's something that, that has, it's come home to roost many, many times because like, and, and me and Julie were talking about this on the way here. Like, yeah, we get clean and a lot comes back and it, and it happens over time. Like when you live 20 years in that and you are, you know, acting out in the highest possible levels that someone can act out, um, and you're, you're on drugs or you're drunk. Um, you, you really haven't even scraped the surface, man. I have things come to me all the time. Um, but no, you know, back, back to your question. Um, I was sticking up for a lot of people, but there was also something in it for me too. Okay. Well, the only reason I, I asked that is because I just, I see it a lot in the school system, um, where, Good kids make bad decisions, um, but when it comes to protecting a friend or uh, somebody who's being bullied, um, they stick up or they stand up and they show up. And so that means there's a large amount of empathy that exists. Yeah. I just am curious as to why that empathy doesn't um, ever carry over to yourself. Mm. Dang. <laughs> he went there, man. <laughs> Man, that's, that's such a good question. And, um, yeah, I, I mean like that's cause we, we act it out, right. We act it out and we take all of our self-hatred and we shoot it back into our arms and, 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 and drink it down. And it comes down to like, we don't think we're worth it. Like, and that's, and that's why. Okay. You know, so it's a value thing. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask if it was a, if it was a value thing or if it was, uh, an invincible thing, like nothing can you know, you guys are weak, yeah. you know, is that kind of how you look at it or is it both? Well, looking back, there's a certain level of both, right? Like, and, and I struggle with my wife's constantly telling me like, you are, you're not that person. Right. Cause I, I remember, and this is going to sound really crude. Um, and of course it comes from, you know, to some of the things I went through, but I've often felt like I feel as a human, I feel like a used condom. Oh, wow. Isn't that a, that's a yeah. messed up way of like yeah. thinking of yourself, but I, you know, you feel like a husk, Yeah, you know? But, and, and this is like where years of going through therapy and, and like dealing with, uh, what is it? Uh, antisocial personality disorder, a nice way of saying, you know, sociopathy. Yeah. Um, so I think that there, there are certain levels of both of these things at play. Sure. Um, I think, you know, I think that you can, you can, um, you can definitely focus them. And you can work through a lot of this stuff. But I, I think Julie or Isaac would, would say that for anybody who's in active addiction, we're narcissists, you know, we're sociopaths, we're opportunists, sure. you know? Um, so it's, it's kind of difficult to, to kind of pinpoint where one starts and the other ends. But I do know, I, I still maintain some of those traits, but I'm much better, like I'm, I'm much better at reining them in yeah as not to hurt someone now yeah you know yeah and i think it's important to just throw out right now probably should have done it at the beginning of the show but just like congratulations guys on another day you know what i mean yeah um it's all I, we got man it's yeah. all you got hours we got this moment right here yep. um okay julie let's kind of talk about your path a little bit if we can um just kind of where you earliest memories of where you kind of felt maybe isolated different um um, and, and maybe it started with grades as simple as grades, or maybe it was something a little different. So listening to Chris talk, it's funny because I had the exact opposite feeling. Um, I felt like I was a victim. I felt like I was weak. I felt like I was vulnerable. 
And the goal is to find people that could take care of me because I needed protecting. Um, So rather than isolating myself, I attached myself to everyone. Um, And every relationship I was in was going to be, you know, the be all end all. I was going to marry them. We were going to be together forever. And this was at like age, you know, 13, 14. (laughs) So of course that's not realistic. And then I just you know, kept experiencing devastation, um, which ended up later on, I would attach myself to people who are extremely abusive um, in relationships. And I think outwardly, they were saying the things I already felt about myself. I wasn't good enough. I was worthless. I was, you know, not pretty enough, not funny enough, all these things that I thought anyway. Um, And so... Over time, I just stayed in a lot of very abusive relationships. Um, And when I was young, I remember um, the first time I drank, having a feeling of I'm not scared anymore. You know, I don't feel like a victim. I don't feel like someone could hurt me anymore because I'm too drunk to care if they did. You're numb. Right. You're numb to the feeling. It took the edge off of life for me because life was was very scary. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So that just... um, progressed. And then, um, I actually ended up coming into, uh, a 12 step program for drinking and met someone there whose drugs of choice were, um, crack and heroin. Okay. And I had never seen either of the two, but I don't by any means blame him for those addictions I ended up having because anything I saw, I did. So I just hadn't seen it. Was there, <laughs> was there any part of you that was like, I don't belong here? I don't belong because, you know, sometimes people will compartmentalize like that's harder stuff. I'm not the same person as you. Was there anything like that or did you dive in? I think that I had the kind of like Chris said, you always level up. So I'll do this, but I won't do that because that's not me. Right. Right. And then I do that. And then it's like, okay, well, I'll do this, but I'll never do that. Right. And then you just keep leveling up. And you do that. You know? Okay. Yep. Yeah. So I, that path, um, you know, I, I I knew I was an alcoholic, but I was okay with that because to me that was acceptable. But once I got on the harder drugs, I was, you know, homeless in Toledo, living in abandoned houses um, in the middle of winter. So you know you have an issue there. That's not socially acceptable. That's not normal. Um, but I believe for me it had to get that bad for me to want to stop, you know, because I would have – probably rode my alcoholism out for the rest of my life, I'm sure. It had to be very blatant that I couldn't operate this way in life, that normal pe- normal people don't do this, right? Um, and so it just had to get so bad. I had to hurt so many people um, before I could get to a point where I was honest enough to say that this isn't working. Sure, know? sure. Man, I, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're okay. I just, I'm listening to you guys and like, uh, be, I'm an empathetic person. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I like, I, I'm like internally crying for your past selves. You know what I mean? But like, I know that's not the point. Like you wouldn't want that. You know, it's like, it's your story. You're overcome your success story. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's just hard not to, cause you know, I, 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 I can just, when I think about my brother, I think about how he hasn't made that decision yet. And there is this sense of um, guilt on myself of like, I'm not doing enough. I don't even know what to do. You know what I mean? Um, And with the situation that happened last night, I basically just stood there and and let him talk. 
Um, and it, the situation could have got a lot uglier than it did because it, it had every element of looking like it was going to. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, I just, I have huge empathy, I suppose. That was a long way of saying that, but, um, <laughs> Isaac, man, you've been quiet for a minute here. Let's, let's hear your, your path, your story, if you don't mind. Yeah. So like I kind of said, um, I grew up with a really religious family. My dad was a pastor growing up. Um, I think that played a big part in secluding me from the world. I was an innocent kid. So hanging around friends, even in school growing up, um, not a lot of guys like could trust me. I never had close friends that way. And when I did have them, they left in middle school. So okay, there was never that connection. Like I didn't get any sexual references or little innuendos that they made. Like I was very innocent. Right. Um, and my mom's side had a pass as well. So my grandpa died of alcoholism when he was 55. And then my brother, or not my brother, my mom's brother, my uncle, he was an addict as well. So they always kind of talked bad about that kind of lifestyle. Um, so I knew I didn't want that. But also I was kind of secluded. So I jumped right into it. Like at 16, 17, I started smoking weed and I realized like I had the confidence. I could talk to people. I became a server, bartender, and that's when I kind of started drinking, and I just used that as my coping mechanism. Before you dive even further, it, would you say that it was, um, it brought a new level of attention to you that maybe you didn't have before? It, like friendship, uh, uh, communities, you know what I mean? Because we all need a sense of community. Um, was that part of it, or did you start smoking on your own in isolation? No, so actually... I had some friends that were hippies, and I made me feel great. Okay. I felt like I was a part of the world. I had friends, like, I was more outgoing, and even my parents noticed it, and they enabled me. They let me smoke weed because they knew it changed my personality. Sure. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting yeah. way of saying that, Isaac. It changed your personality. Sometimes things change your personality, I guess, for the better. And in their eyes, they thought that was for the better, right? Yeah. How did looking back on it now, how do you feel? Um, I feel like I could have done it without it. Okay. It definitely made that stepping stone where, um, I realized that my potential was more, but I wish I would have developed that by myself. Okay. Um, keep going. Sorry. Yeah. Um, sorry. I don't know where I'm at, but you started smoking weed, started getting sense of community and confidence and you were working some different jobs. Yep. So started serving bartending and I started being very charismatic. Um, I liked that lifestyle. Like I was making more friends. I was part of the community. Um, I was progressing in my jobs, getting promotions. And when I picked up drinking, um, it didn't start fast at all. I just kind of, you know, did it once in a while. But then um, it changed. I was drinking every day, um, using it in the mornings, at night, going through a bottle. And it, my, in my terms, it helped. Like. I was able to function. Yeah, like why would this thing be negative if it's I'm seeing so many positive rewards yeah. from it? Yeah. Until there wasn't. Right. Until it started going downhill. I needed it for everything. Um, lost a two-year relationship because of it. And the whole time, I was using the whole time, and she also enabled it in a way, but she didn't really notice it because I was hiding it. Right. Yeah. You're also young. And society yes. says that it's okay for you to drink every day at that point because you're... I told myself that a lot. Right. I'm 22 or 21 at the time, and I'm like, I 
have my whole life. I can wait till I'm 30 to figure this out. Right. And then it hit me fast. I had to change. The rock bottom moment. Exactly. That's where we are right now. The rock bottom moment. And then I, I think from there we can kind of slide into the gap. Um, uh, what was that like for you guys? Um, and how can I speed that up for my brother? Which one? Which rock bottom, hey. man? Oh, okay. Okay. And, and what year? Sorry for my ignorance no, on no, that. Yeah, no. yeah, no. No, no, no. Fill me in on that. Well, yeah. some people do have a specific. Right, right. Um, do you, you want to go do yours first? I didn't mean to talk about that. No, no, no. You're good. You're good. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, I, I'm kind of like Chris. I have, uh, you know, an accumulative of sure. all my bottoms became my bottom. Um and it's because I had this great desire to be able to use successfully um, because like you had kind of alluded to, how can my solution be my problem? You know, this is my solution. So um, I kept trying to successfully be able to use and function in life. So I hit many different bottoms. But the, the very last time um, I had, I was working with an all sober crew um, flipping houses and um, I kind of got sober. I went back out, got sober, went back out. So I surrounded myself with people in recovery still because they're good people. Um, and I showed up to work with a black guy. Um, I, I think I had broken some ribs a week before that. And, uh, I didn't break them. My significant other at the time did. Sure. Um, so I showed up to work and the guys <clears throat> I worked with, um, you know, they just weren't having it anymore. It was too hard for them to watch. So my boss um, at the time, who's a, a very good friend of mine today, told me, here's your options. You can't show up to work here anymore because you got this whole crew of guys ready to go, you know, beat this dude's ass right, and right. they can't work. Um, or I will take you right now to the battered women's shelter and you can change your life. And that was the first time I kind of thought in my head, I'm just going to commit. I'm either going to commit to be a drug addict forever and just 100% do this thing um, or commit to being sober and see what that looks like. Um, and it was kind of like the black or white A's or F's, yeah. things, you know, I'm going to commit. So I, I was, I decided to commit to sobriety, you know, and every day, like you said, I have today, I'm curious what tomorrow looks like, you sure. know, cause yeah, I'm yeah. sober and I don't know, you know, nobody knows. Right. right. That's, right. that's the good news. Um, and I just, I wanted to touch <clears throat> on what you said about yeah. your brother when yeah. you said that you, um, you're not doing enough. You're probably doing too much. It's I, usually too much. I, when my parents stopped is when I got it. Sure. Um, I, I don't know that I am doing too much, only for the fact that, like, we're all adults. We all have our different lives. He's been in and out of the, the system. Um, so it kind of feels like at times he's been a stranger, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? So when he does show up in the house, like, oh, my brother's here. You know, right. that's awesome. I, we are so close growing up. You know, that's kind of still what I'm clinging to is like that. Um, and, you know, we've had a couple of emotional conversations this summer, which is like, oh, maybe, you know what I mean? Um, and then then it just showed its ugly head last night. So, like, I'm just I'm in a, an emotional yeah. record in my head right now. So I don't know. But um, that makes it so much harder, too, is when you get glimpses because your brother's not there most of the time. It's right. not your it's brother. Not, exactly. And then you get those glimpses and you're like, oh, hope. And. I mean, there's, there's no time limit, man. Yeah. Like, you know, it's it just, it isn't. And yeah, so we get it. Um, with what you said about, um, well, I guess let's, let's go to your rock bottom and I'll kind of see if I go ahead, Chris, uh, or your, 
yeah. culmination of yeah. that. Yeah. So I, I've had so many rock bottoms, man. Um, I've had just so, so many rock bottoms. I mean, like, and it's, it's very hard for me to like pinpoint any of them. And sometimes your rock bottom isn't necessarily like the time you're, you know, in a jail cell, you know, throwing up on yourself, detoxing in a bullpen with a bunch of other dudes. Sometimes it's, it's just, you know, a, a moment, man, a moment where you, you get some clarity. Um, I guess, and, and I've been in all type of places. Like I've broken my neck twice in my addiction. I've been homeless. I've been, you know, locked up. I've, I've been to all these different places. I've woken up after, you know, being, being brought back Narcan time after time and pulled pick lines out of my femoral artery and went Jeez. walking out yeah. of ERs. Like I've done that. I remember, um, really specifically, uh, when I was at the Salvation Army, um, like obviously I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't at my, my worst point, but I, I had a, a realization where I was like, where the F am I right now? Like I was working in a warehouse sorting clothes, you know, around all these other junkies and just so like, couldn't believe, you know, where my life had been. And I had been in all these horrible places with horrible people and seen all these traumatic things. But like that moment where I like realized like I'm sorting clothes in a warehouse with 60 other dudes who are all homeless and like, how the fuck did I end up here? Like, right. what is this man? Um, and, and like, I, I know I had all sorts of irrational thoughts at that, at that point. Like, I remember like, cause they were real religious. Right. And I was not like, I didn't believe in God, but I remember, and this is going to sound nuts. Right. Like I remember a moment where I'm like, I want to sell my soul to the devil to get out of this. Like what? Yeah. You don't even believe in God. Yeah. But like you believed in the devil. <clears throat> I swear. And I swear, like I was having conversations with guys like, man, do you think like if we drew a pentagram up on the floor in here, you know what I mean? Like, ha like just how, you know, irrational and ridiculous your thought. And, and like, I'm, I'm a Christian now. Right. Yeah. But, but then like, I was ready to, to sell my soul to a, to a devil that I didn't even believe in. Well, you know, it. That that's so funny you say that. Cause uh, it reminds me of, I'm not sure if you've caught the Shia LaBeouf interview that he had with uh, Bernthal on real ones. Yeah. He talks about, when he was in his addiction and, and he still says that he's in it, but, um, the idea of always finding the loophole, yeah. what, what's the loophole? Where's the loophole at? How can I, you know, you know, navigate myself to back to the societal norms and put that excuse on to it so that people will believe me a little bit. And he said, it wasn't until his loopholes were all gone. In your case, you're trying to figure out where the loophole is with the, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With a higher power, with, with a higher God, power. Yeah. That you don't even believe in, yeah. you know, just insanity. Yeah. Sanity. Um, Isaac. Yes. Rock bottom for you, buddy. Um, it definitely took me a little bit to realize I was at the bottom. Um, my health was my biggest factor. Um, I got fatty liver uh, about a year ago, and I had to stop drinking. I was getting sick. Um, I started getting sober with my dad instead of going to a detox. And I remember my mom walking in and handing me a AA book, and I didn't want it. I didn't want. You didn't it. want it because mom brought it to you. Mostly or because I needed it. Okay. Like I knew about my mom's sides, her past, her family. And I didn't want to go through all the, I, know, I didn't want to tell myself that I was an addict. Right. I wanted to say that I was young. I had my, as they say, college phase where I drank a lot and I just had to stop. And I got sober for about two months at my dad's house all by myself with him. And it was bad. I hated it. Like, um, 
I knew back in my in the back of my head that I was gonna drink again. I just wanted to get my liver back in check, my health good, and I was gonna go back. Right. And I did. I did. And every time I did get drunk or whatever I was doing, I would always be yelling at God and saying, Why am I in this spot? Like, help me. Even my dad would read scripture to me as I was drunk because he just, you know, that's the only time I would listen. And um, when I did go back to drinking and just as much as I could, it was, I don't know, I got back my health. Like, my liver was damaged again. And my mom took me to Arrowhead. And she works on a Christian radio station, Proclaim FM. And she said that she knew someone, and it happened to be Chris Everett. And he picked me up from Arrowhead, and he asked me if I wanted to change everything about myself. And that was kind of when I was like, I I want that. And I'm kind of glad I went through that. Yeah, because here you are now, right? Um. You know, just part of me just, you know, when we talk about the empathy or empathy thing earlier, it's like this idea that the reason I'm so empathetic to the situation is because from an outsider's perspective, you know what I mean? It's a lot of times you hear it's like, oh, I started because of the traumas in my life. And then you're you're wanting to say you're you're creating more trauma for your life. So you're the cycle continues and but there's no rational thinking in that moment, you know? Um, or to be, like you said, there's a time and a place where like you weren't ready for it. It's like you, only you can manifest your good days, no matter how much I want to try it. You know what I mean? Um, talking about your good days, there's something interesting that does make me worry, uh, for my, my loved one. Um, I was just curious what made you guys other than, I mean, the rock bottom, but like, was there always this sense of like tomorrow at least an ambition in you that has, you know, like I want to be better because I've, I've talked about this on my show many times, but there's something called the growth mindset. And there's like people that are stuck in like these three different phases in life. You know, there's the executive state of mind, which is people who become really cold. It's like the highest level you can be, but like they become very cold. Everything's data driven. You know, they look at numbers and facts and like, they just kind of like take all the emotion out of it which is a good way of looking at it at certain, you know, jobs and things of that nature. Then there's people that are in the middle and most people are in the emotional state of mind where like they want better for themselves, but they, you know, they always are triggered or react emotionally to every decision or every problem. And then there's those that are on the other end um, and it's the survival state. And it's just, I'm cold now, I need warmth. I'm hungry now, I need food. And there's never this idea that tomorrow even exists. So I worry that my brother, even as long as I've known him, even when before the drugs, has always kind of been a survival state. Can you have a rock bottom if tomorrow never exists for you, period? <laughs> um, man, that's a, that's a great question. Um. <sighs> It's, it's very difficult. It, 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 it literally, it's, it's the act of providence, right? Or the miracle has, has to happen. Um, <clears throat> I, and I'm just speaking for myself in this. Um, I know I got to a point in my addiction 
where um like because you go through like your early stages and you're like i can still pull out of this you know and that that goes on for years right um but i can remember where i was the moment it happened where i was like i uh i am so addicted i'm never gonna be able to stop this like you know and and what a helpless empty feeling that was you know but but then um it's self-perpetuating Sorry, I don't know if I'm speaking. In the no, mic. I think what's happened yeah. with your stand is over time it just lowers on you, yeah. and you yeah. have to bring it back up. I'm right. sorry. No, it's good. It's good. Um, yeah, and that, so I know by the time I actually, you know, made it to the Salvation Army, right, and this was you know six years ago, I it, it took a miracle because I didn't think the only thing that kept me there was it was the middle of February and I had nowhere else to go. Sure, it's the only reason I stayed. Um, I didn't think I could get sober. I didn't think that I deserved to be sober. I, I didn't think that I could have a different life. I thought that this was my lot and I would die and I would die that way. And I was okay with that. Like a hundred percent. Okay. It took me months of being stuck. If it, the weather wouldn't have been cold, I wouldn't have stayed. I would have went right back out. Maybe a little divine intervention. That's exactly, that's it. That's it, man. That's exactly what it took. And, and I would, I would honestly know i would hazard to guess that they would tell you something very similar like when they started out and i mean no one especially when you've been in it like as long as say like me and and i'm not taking anything away from isaac but i mean i was you know almost almost (laughs) 20 years in man to that's all i knew um so you were you were an addict for 20 years yeah oh and probably longer and and probably longer because i was I mean, I always had those tendencies like that was always lying dormant inside of me and how dormant was it when I was feeding into it, right? Like right. I mean, if I was seven years old drinking a beer or huffing gas when I'm nine, like I'm an addict. I'm already an addict. I've already flipped the switch. The obsession's already started and I'm following it. So whether it was like an everyday usage or I'm out punching people in the face or I'm, you know, having sex at 11, you know, like that's all part of it, man. It's all part of it, man, man, this is deep stuff. Uh, I appreciate you guys just sharing all this stuff. Um, I, I, let's talk about the gap then. Why the gap? Why this mission that you're on right now? Is it purely because, you know, you just know that the system doesn't offer enough or did that come kind of like domino after domino? It's like, you know what? I, you know, I personally need somewhere to go. I bet someone else does too. What can I do to help? Like, how did that come about? Because this is what you offer. I mean, this is next level. This is not something that, this is something that should be prominent every single place. And you'd think it'd be set up by the system, but it's set up by people by like you. Tell me, tell me, explain the gap to us, man. So that's a super layered question. Sure. Like a hundred percent in, in, yeah, it came in bits and pieces. Like I, I and I, I'll try to keep it as as contained and as as short as I can. So uh, when I'm at the Salvation Army, I'm I'm attempting to, you know, get sober, um, and I feel like shit, and I I don't have a lot of self worth. Um, I I don't know if my mic's in. Um, You're good. We hear you. Uh, yeah, okay. I. So like I started right where I was, right? Like I just started finding people that were worse off than me and helping them out and doing it anonymously because um, I'm a junkie, right? And and uh, it made me feel good. 
like in, I knew that just helping, you know, somebody else, like I, I didn't know how else to do it. I knew hurting people wasn't helping and that I was changing. What would be considered helping a junkie in that moment though? Cause that's not, that's yeah. not just them recovery. No, right? no. So like it, it could be, um, I remember there was a guy there. I used to help him get on his shoes every morning. He was like, couldn't do it. There's like 60 year old men there messed up. Um, or, or like somebody needing a cigarette and, sure. and going and, you know, getting a couple of Lucy's and putting them under his pillow, just like, you know, little stuff, but yeah. the little stuff equates to the big stuff, sure. such as life, um, kept moving through, ended up, you know, being offered a houseman position there and really learned the ins and outs of like working. I, I mean, and like all of us here have a built in skill set that only we know, right? We know both sides of the coin, right? We know the recovery aspect and we know the other side. Um, I had known what the gaps were for years because I had fallen through, ended up working for uh, a private pay insurance company and really, or not insurance, um, treatment center and, and really seeing kind of how the system worked and really got uh, a distaste for it, you know? Um, I, I guess like if you want to go my my overall reason for starting the gap I I was running um I was running a housing uh a housing um part of of this treatment center actually Julie was working with me that's that's where we learned to work together um had a guy I got really close with who came back said he had used I'm like man thanks for you know being honest and I called my boss and um the, his insurance had lapsed or they weren't covering anymore so he's like he's got to go. I'm like, okay, uh, ended up taking him to a red roof in that night. We're going to take him to the Salvation Army the next day. Uh, instead, um, we got a call from a hospital wanting to come in and identify this guy who's not quite dead, but he's on his way. Um, and, you know, it, it was really bad. I, I won't get into, like, you know, the gory details of it, but basically all we could do is wait for his mom and dad to show up and take him off the vent. Um I walked away from that job within a, within a week of that. And I, and I, I, you know, fell into a deep depression, um, and, and prayed a lot. But what I did was I, I, you know, deconstructed the system. I took a step back and I'm like, what are we missing here? You know, because yeah. there's so much missing. Um, and from that point, it was like an intentional walk towards this. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't have the money, but I had the knowledge you know, I had the knowledge of the street. I had a knowledge of the lack of resources. Um, and I actually had the pipeline, right? Like, so I had the people that I had worked with in treatment who were still working in treatment that were scattered about all these other agencies. Um, I, I had kept working in the shelter system and in, you know, different facets of, of recovery and really kept rooted, especially in the inner city, um, kind of where I had, had gotten clean. So I, I just had, I had this, you know, infrastructure that was already built yeah. of people, of people. And, um, we just, we, we developed it from there, man. So by the time we started getting attention, um, it was good to go. The biggest asset, the biggest problem was the money. Yeah. <laughs> was how to get the money. Um, but, and that's yeah. always yeah. the biggest problem is yeah. fundraising, fundraising, fundraising. Sure. Well, and we don't bill insurance cause we don't bill. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's crucial too. And, and that's important to us. Yes. You know what I mean? To, to actually be. Every life matters. Right. Yes. Right. And, and actually have it be about the life. Yeah. 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 And we could have easily done that. We have clinicians that are on board. We could have easily started taking insurance and started our own treatment uh, facility and people would come to us because, I mean, we do have, we have that respect. We have that integrity. We have that name behind us. And, um, you know, we've, 
we've treated everybody, everybody in this with us as an investment, man. And, and it's, it's the long game, right? Like right. I know most of these people are not getting clean. Um, but we're pouring into them anyway, because somewhere along the line, they might be ready, but they'll always remember who was there. Right. And, and then our biggest goal is taking these people that we've poured into over time. And when they finally get it, they want to help other people. So, so then they pay it forward. They pay it forward. So we just have this big community of soldiers that we're building, man, um, that, that just keep it, you know, that already have their, their roots in that community. It's a beautiful thing. And, and like, yeah, it's, it's really forced a lot of these other agencies to like take some social responsibility and look at like what they're doing. Um, and, and you get any number of people who are, you know, they want to, they want to pretend because that's what they're doing. Like we know because we're out there. Yeah. We do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, God bless them, but it, it just is what it is. Like, this is all we do, man. This is all we do. So we know what we're doing. When you talk about treatment centers, so like, you you don't want to believe that it's a dollars and cents thing, you know, but like when my buddy, just to give you a small example, 15 years ago, we were in college, um, talk about, um, <clears throat> partying and drinking, uh, at that time he, it was my birthday and he, uh, he got pulled over for drinking and driving in Ohio and it was, uh, he had an option, go to rehab for the weekend or go to jail for the weekend. It was cheaper to go to jail. Right. He went yeah. to jail. And then he came out of it and went back to work on the following Monday. But it was like that always sat weird with me. That didn't make any sense because if they were sending him that rehab for an option, then you're saying that you believe this person to have a problem. Do you really want to help the problem? And it sounds a lot of times like the treatment centers, and I'm sure there's better ones than there are, you know, there's a hierarchy. Some are better than others, I'm sure. But that's when you kind of realize that like there's a gap here. So what is the process then like? you know, for what you guys offer. So you said there's, there's these resources, there's these laps or the gap, as you call it in the system. What are those specifically? If I, what's the process from someone who's made the decision, I'm ready to get clean. Where would they normally go? Would they go to a treatment center first and you work hand in hand with that? Or have you created your own treatment center per se with housing and the whole thing? And I know you, that's where you kind of come in, Julie. So specifically um, lay it out for me yeah so dude what we do is so broad mm -hmm. and so gray like we we definitely have our um you know our pipeline right and like we deal specifically with with treatment centers with people who are getting kicked out with case workers but we deal a ton with people in the community such as yourself who have got a loved one who they have no idea what to do with um uh, they, you know, they've messed up their home situation. They don't know how to say no. Uh, dude, we do everything from doing our, our search and rescue or not search and rescue. I don't know why I say that, but our, you don't have to search. We, we, <laughs> um, we do everything from our, our crisis care, which is a huge part of it. Like we go out in the community and, and, you know, we do crisis management, man. We do that in the house. We do that outside the house. We have a lot of these agencies call us to come take care of, of their crisis situations. Um, we do everything from that to the immediate shelter, to the supervision, um, to the placement, and now our own sober living, which to us is the most um, beneficial part of treatment because it's the practical application, right? Yeah. You can't sit in groups for six months and learn how to survive out there. And most of these guys and girls have been doing this and they're institutionalized because the system's created that way, right? Right. Like they, there's money in, in relapse, not recovery. 
so that they just keep it in a circle and they keep people sick um, and, and don't let them ever get the practical application. And whether that's, you know, contrived, pre-thought out or, or whether it's just irresponsibility, you know, like <laughs> at, at the very least it's irresponsible and at the worst it's criminal. Yeah. It's all just bullshit. Right. Right. Because we've recognized it. Other people recognize it. And, and I'm sure this isn't like a super popular thing for me saying it. And I've, I've held back for a long time on saying it, um, you know, because I want to be able to help everybody. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I should just stop. Maybe I should just stop on this. It's uh, at any rate, we started out with started out talking about the the pipeline. We did, there's just so much that we're out there doing, and we and the reason that we're able to do that is because we work in grays. We work in gray areas where agencies only work in black and white. Right. So they can only help you from the time. They get you get in front of them in an office, and you've got an insurance card, or you got cash in hand. Right. We do everything else, man. Right. And and those are the spots when you don't have that. Those are the spots where people die, you know. So, so yeah. So we work with just the agencies, the families. I consult. We had talked about starting a separate consulting agency because I work with so many people who are you know have their masters in social work and have no idea. Right. You know what, and and I'm not taking anything away from anyone who's been to school, but there's only so much that you're going to learn sitting in a classroom, man. Oh, uh, yeah. trust me, I understand. Yeah. yeah, it's it's there's already a built-in. If I'm an addict, going to you or going to the Gap Toledo, there's already a built-in um, trust with you guys because I know you've been through it. You know, I know what you know. What I'm talking about right um, where it's kind of like you reverting back to you know, kind of talking to people that 95% of them aren't ever going to experience this and it kind of pisses you off a little bit. Um, and I get that feeling because they're not, you know, ever going to experience that, which is good, but it's, yeah. it's you, it's, they're not going to experience it because you came in and talked to them that day. They're For not sure. going to experience it because life is not going to take them down that road. Yeah. Um, and their coping mechanisms. Um, so then where does, so Julie, you, 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 you kind of are in charge of the housing, right? Females, yeah. Oh, with the females. Mm -hmm. Okay. Where do you kind of come into the part then Isaac? So you are, are you a part of the, now you're on the other side where you, they seen the light bulb moment with you and now you're paying it forward. Um, where, where are they, where are you at with it? For like in terms of the gap? Yeah. Like what is your role with the gap and, uh, how do you see yourself envision yourself going forward? Yeah. So I'm, fairly new to like working for the gap with Chris. Um, we just started the men's house. So I've been helping second men's that. house, second men's house. Sorry. Yeah. How many, how many guys are in these houses? So all in all, um, right now it's between guys and girls. It's between like 15 and 22 people in our sober living and our crisis care is different. Um, yeah, like the, we have the capacity for much, much more. We are, we're trying to be careful with it sure. that, that way. Like, especially with our sober living people, because they've already made it past crisis care. And most of them all started out in crisis care and they're becoming, um, you know, members of society. And we want to make sure that we're walking with them the right way. Right. You're not spreading yourself too thin. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, it, it gets hard with crisis care because you just, you know, you want to, you want to save everybody. Uh, and the sad fact is you just can't, and you can't put the others in at hazard. Right. And you can't put yourself at hazard and drain your, you know, resources with somebody who's coming and thinking they're just going to shoot dope in your house for right. two days, which they get, they get kind of a, <laughs> a rude, rude awakening, awakening when they show up. Cause we've all, 
most of us have been incarcerated and just yeah. we're hip to the bullshit and we catch it right out the rat, you know, right off the rip. So, yeah. um, but yeah, we, we, we have capacity for a lot, but I say right now, I think we have like maybe between 18 and 20 people living in our sober living, but they all started crisis care. And every single one of them started with you crisis care and are now in your sober living. Yeah. Except, except for a few of the women that was a little bit different, but everybody else. Yeah. They came in. Butt hanging out of their butt, man. I'm trying to clean up my language. Yeah. Time. But like, yeah, for, for real, they had sparks coming out of their butt. It was, uh, it, it was bad, you know? So Isaac, are you a part of that crisis care team or are you more, you know, working your way towards, you know, doing some other things? Um, so right now we're just like for the new house, we haven't really started crisis care as much. Um, mostly just managing the men that are living there now for sober living. And doing intakes with new people, going to pick up people that are going through it, transporting them to detox, and yeah, just making sure the house is running. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's important too. They all, you guys all kind of like serve a role here. Do you ever find yourself, uh, kind of a question I asked her earlier um, <clears throat> about, because you, you dealt with alcohol. Correct. You're seeing a lot of different, harder stuff, right? Do you ever, does it make you nervous? Do you ever, is it just a learning process of asking questions or just observing and then figuring out like, what is your, how do you, how are you processing that internally? Cause I can only imagine that it's a surreal scene. It's definitely a learning process because I don't know all the ins and outs of like harder drugs. So recognizing like when someone's using or when someone is, you know, going through it, it's hard for me to see that because I'm only used to alcohol. Okay. But it's, like we said, a learning aspect. I'm trying to learn it now, um, know all the medications, know all the signs and how to deal with them. And Chris has been helping a lot with that. Do you see yourself, um, is it fair to say that, is it, is, is it ever, because I know we talk about how it's an everyday battle, right? But is there ever, I mean, there's got to be a time where you feel more in control of it than not in control of it. Is that fair to say? Or is that because what I, I guess what I'm getting at is because what is your long term vision look like with with the gap? Is it something that, you know, you want to continue to do and give back? Or is it something that you think you'll part ways with later in life so that you, it, it's not a constant reminder of where you once were? Um, I can't answer that for sure. But I definitely want it to be a huge stepping stone as long as I'm there to build me up and I'm able to give back in the future. Because even growing up, like my dad and my mom, they would do missionary work. They'd go to jails and preach to people that are in there. Um, it wasn't more of the addiction aspect, but more of like homelessness. And I've always had one of that purpose in life. Sure. So this giving me it now, I don't know where it's going to take me, but I'm taking advantage of it. Nice. Nice. Chris is uh, back from the bathroom. Sorry about that, man. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, man. No worries. Um. <laughs> You know, one thing I was learning, listen, just talking to you guys over this hour is just um, everything, you know, I'm an educator, so I, you look for common denominators and you hope that you start there and you, you think that maybe you might be able to solve an issue or you tackle a problem with, you know, oh, we all have this in common. It's not the case. You guys all, everybody, we all, as human beings, we just have too many different variables to ever be able to pinpoint what it is. Um, and that's the, that's the journey. Um where do you think we are right now? And, and maybe you can just talk on Toledo, I suppose, but like, um, uh, or maybe in this country, um, 
with drug usage is in your opinion on um, how to fight back. Because you're doing your part in the reactionary stage. What can we do more of on the proactive stage, if any, to fight back from drugs and alcoholism? Just the abuse part of it. Is it just, is it, does it, is there a young educator who's passionate about it that could have reached a Chris in third grade to set him on a different path? Or is it all, you know, the, the upbringing and the variables and then the, you know, the nurture part of it, or did it not matter if, you know, let's say everybody hit a hundred or a thousand percent on the batting average with Chris growing up, it sounded like you were going the opposite direction, no matter what, that's the nature part of it. Yeah. There was, there was nothing that was going to pull me out. And I'm, I'm anxious to hear uh, Julie's stance on it. Mine can go on and on. Like <laughs> over the years I have, I have uh, really examined these issues, examine, you know, uh, whether it be like the, the blight and the decay and the breakdown of the family, um, and the socioeconomic and the government and, and just like all of these different aspects because they all play a part. Right. Um, and I can take you through a timeline and I could take you through like, you know, how it started and how we're, we're here now. But, uh, so I, I guess the easiest way that, that I can, I can tell you is, um, you see, sometimes you see people in recovery wearing, you know, shirts that say like, shoot your local heroin dealer, or you get these moms who are so mad at the drug dealer. The enemy is the man in the mirror, man. Right. Like it, it just is. Um, we're, we're our own worst, own worst enemy, but it, it does start in the home, man. It does start in the home, but there's any number of variables and factors that feed into that. Like what's your family history look like? Do you have suicide? Do you have mental health? Do you have drug abuse in the family? You know, are you poor? You know, are you making it to school? Is your dad around? There's just so many things. And that's why it doesn't discriminate over race, sex, gen, race, sex, um, you know, religion. It, it doesn't matter, man. It's, it's, it just, it, it creeps over every single, every single, uh, you know, seeming parameter. There are none. Well, you know, I, I just, I, great answer, by the way. I was just curious because like, you know, now we've got this, this, what's, what is a societal norm now in the sense of like, uh, there's constantly these debates about labels and whether or not we should be labeling kids, certain thing at a certain age or, or even something as something like depression or anxiety that this is something that is becoming a new normal to talk about. Um, and I think it's great, but I also wonder how much of that, when you label a kid at 10 years of age, um, a depressed, chronic depressed person or um, in high anxiety person, if that doesn't right away make them feel feel different and put them on a path of something else because they don't feel like they are a part of the norm. Even though that's your everything you're trying to achieve, it's like almost like a catch-22. It's like we're trying to say you are a part of the norm, but it still doesn't necessarily sink in or sit in. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, I just I just wonder where that takes place. What's your thoughts on that, considering that you were somebody that was uh, depressed at 10? Well, so kind of what it made me think of as a conversation Chris and I had had a while back is that now it's um, trendy to be uh, a drug addict in recovery, you know, and it's yeah. almost like trending because we've tried to destigmatize being an addict. Now it's like sober is sexy shirts and stuff like that, you know. So it's, um, I think wherever there 
whenever an issue arises and we try to deal with it, there's so many loopholes to fall through. Like Chris was saying, like the mental health, the, um, the family, and then the way think people process the, the, right. the home and what they're experiencing in their life. So it seems like no matter how you try to come at it, there's always going to be another, another issue over here that hasn't yet been addressed, you know? So I think, just circling back around to like the sense of community to me, I find that that is the biggest thing that people helps people kind of overcome um, is finding a community where they're loved, they're supportive, they're fitting in kind of like we have at the gap um, just supporting each other um, and moving forward is kind of what I've found to be the best remedy for it, I guess. Um, Because that combats all of it. The, the mental health, you know, we'll support you through being in therapy, we will support you um, through your depressive episodes, you know, we'll be there for you. Um, And then through your trauma and through your loneliness and in your good times, because people use when they're happy to, you know? Yeah. Um, So just having a community of people to lean on to me is, is very important. You know, one of those, one of those big things I think that's helpful in overcoming it. Um. Man, this has been great, guys. This has been really good stuff. Like, I just looked at the clock and like, wow, we're an hour and fifteen into this. Oh so. wow! <laughs> um, I, uh, I I can't thank you enough. Um, is there anything that maybe uh, you wanted to talk about or that we're missing with the gap um, that you know maybe we didn't hit on, or just maybe final thoughts on maybe a a message or you know what what can my audience members do? You know, I'll throw all your stuff out there for you know if anybody is wanting or willing or capable of donating. Um, cause I know that funding is, is always a crucial thing of what you're doing. Um, Chris thoughts. Um, <clears throat> I'm just, I'm very grateful that, that you had us out here and I, I just, I really enjoyed talk. I, I love talking about the hard things. Mm-hmm. Um, because like for us, those are the real things. I think for a lot of people, those, you know, they, they label it different than we do. Those are just, we like, we like real stuff. Sure. We're, we're real people. Um, and, and that's why we, that's why we do this, you know, because there, there is a human face to this. And even when people say that they're not affected, well, you're just, you're not affected until you are right. You know, until it shows up at your doorstep or ODs in your bathroom. Um, this affects everybody. And if it ain't affecting you on a, an emotional level, I guarantee it's affecting you economically. Um, whether it be through, you know, losses of OD deaths or you're getting your shed robbed for the power tools. Yeah. This, this affects everyone. Um, and I just want to encourage anybody like, yeah, we are gap Toledo. I work with people all over the country, man. People call, um, and so I just want to encourage any of your listeners who, who might, who might hear of us who are going through uh, a tough situation, just need some support. They, they need some guidance. They need some strategy. Um, please reach out. We're, we're here. Um, and if I don't know somebody, I guarantee I, I know somebody who does. Yeah. You really are Chris in my 35 years of life, you know, and I, I'm not, um, just because of my, my paths that I've taken, I, I, I've, you know, I, I've, Growing up in Adrian here, and it's a it's a it's a middle class, but it's a lower to middle class economy. So I, you know, I I've seen my fair share outside of my my brother um, of people, and you know that have struggled and had their issues with whether it be opioids or alcohol or you know um, um, whatever their addiction might be. Um, it's important to know that 
I've never came across somebody that what you're doing, especially the insurance part of it is so huge. Um, you're organized, you have a, uh, a team assembled. Um, so just, uh, man, just c- congratulations on your guys' efforts. Um, and, uh, you're continued to be here today yeah. and we'll see what tomorrow brings. Leave that for tomorrow. Absolutely. And just let me say really quick, yeah. there, there are more of us. We, we have other, we have other team members that are, we couldn't do this without. Yeah. How, how many, how big is your staff? It's hard to say because we're constantly developing staff. Yeah, That's sure. part of what we do with, with the gap is to make, um, anybody who, who wants it, which it should be anybody who's been pulled from that, right? Anybody who's been pulled from that. We want to create soldiers in this fight. And and the big thing is, is like, you're not going to stay sober. You're not going to be able to um, also reconcile some of the shit that you've been through unless you can make purpose and meaning, yeah. find purpose and meaning through giving back. Because like, there's there's no way that like, after you come back down to earth and, and you look back at your life that you're going to be able to like, ju- I mean, some people can, I couldn't. I, I know I couldn't through, through what I had been through. I needed I needed something greater, and this had to be balance the scales a little bit. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. No, I, I mean like this is this is um, you know for so many reasons, but like we try to offer that um, for everybody who's coming through because I I know what a guy like me needed, you know, and, and it might be like in degrees, right? But yeah. like we all kind of need the same thing. We need purpose. We need direction. Everybody. Yep. Yep. Love community. And a reason. Love, service, and gratitude. Yep. Oh my yep. God. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Uh guys, uh, just thank you again. I completely, completely appreciate you being here. I think this is uh this is one of my favorite episodes just because it is real. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you guys were completely real. And I appreciate you doing that because you could have came in here and sugarcoated it or just kind of phoned it in while you were doing this again for this shitty podcast for Bobby talks though. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I believe in what we're doing here, even though it's on a small scale and you guys are doing something much bigger. Um, and maybe this is like step one of like, you know, could be Austin gap or the gap, Boston, the gap, you know, Ann Arbor, the gap, whatever it could be, you know, all over the country. You could have started something here. I guarantee that this is the start of that. Yeah. And, and I, and I also guarantee that this is not it for you either. This yeah. is, this yeah. is huge. Yeah. This is huge. Um, awesome. Uh, well, Isaac, any last words, buddy? Um, I think that covers it all. <laughs> Man, a few words. Yeah, I, I am. <laughs> I appreciate you being here, Isaac. Julie, what about you? Just thank you very much for having us. It was great. I had fun. It was the first one I've done. Awesome. Same here. Awesome. Awesome. So I'm comfortable. He's a he's a we took your media cherry there. That's uh all right, guys. We appreciate it. As always, follow, like, subscribe, do the whole thing. Um I uh appreciate you guys listening and uh as always be human. We'll talk to you later.